Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 116. I am your host, as always, Walter, and joining me today are Azil. Hey, everybody. Grail. Hello. And Gabolatula. Yo, yo. We're back. Uh, just a little bit of news before we get into the main event, which is, of course, finishing up the Volume 25 reread. The only real news is that the exhibition, the Big Berserk exhibition, uh, has an official date range, as in the whole span that it will run. It's going to be September 10th to 23rd in Japan at the Sunshine City Exhibition Hall. Uh, so if you are a Japanese resident or living in Japan otherwise, uh, check it out. Otherwise, I think they're just basically telling foreigners to piss off due to the uh, regulations around uh, COVID-19. Well, I mean, so. you if you are in Japan, even as a foreigner, you can you can go to the exhibition. But uh, yeah, the country is locked down right now, so you can't enter from any country. Yep. yep. Too bad. Um, but yeah, we'll see if they open it or expand it beyond that range. They did say they were going to tour at some point, uh, but zero specifics on that right now. Um, Fingies but, crossed. Uh, yeah. That aside, I don't really, it's been kind of quiet for obvious reasons. Uh, and there's nothing really happening on the forum. There's nothing really happening uh, in the Berserk world. Uh, no news on volume 41, which is the only thing I expect in the next several months. But of course, check to forum out uh, if you want to follow that kind of stuff. I'm really hoping for some sort of tribute in Young Animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think something like that would take some time to put together because they want to get all the right people to do it. Um, probably take a few months. I don't know why. Somehow, I was, for some reason, I was expecting it like immediately after, probably just out of like a desperation wanting something. But yeah. in retrospect, it makes sense that they would pause for a bit before you know coming back with something significant to show. Yeah, I'm glad they're taking their time on whatever it is they're planning to present. Yeah. Well, honestly, I think... Uh like just merely organizing it, uh, even like if they want to do a tribute, trying to get artists uh, right. who want to participate on boards, that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's gonna take a long time. I mean, there's a lot of logistical stuff to deal with, probably. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was very sudden. Everybody like it was a shock to everybody. So I think, as expected, they were bl- completely blindsided, and uh, yeah, it's gonna take a while. Even for any kind of news to come out, uh, I, I think even if it weren't for the exhibition, it might take uh, months and months for anything to, to materialize. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I um, I don't know about you guys, but when I started this Volume 25 uh, reread, or, or the second half of it, I had not touched a Berserk volume uh, since the news. Uh, I don't know if it's like intentionally or subconsciously, but just... Cracking open a volume, just uh, it was a, little, it, it definitely felt different for sure yeah. for me. It's oh, interesting because yeah. people, I think, have dealt with it, the whole situation in different ways. Like for example, uh, Darklink was talking about how he was like doing a complete reread of the series, and I was like, man, I I admire that you can do that. I can't even pick up a volume right now, so it was definitely different for me too to do the reread notes. Yeah. Yeah, I also wanted to do a reread, but at the same time, for the same reason, I just didn't feel like I could I could really go through it and really, you know, focus on the story and mm-hmm. be quite uh, distracted. And likewise, for this one, I, I couldn't help but feel like whenever Miura was living, 
seeing his drawings on the page was like he was communicating with us kind of actively. But now that he's no longer here, it's like he has said all that he has to say on this page and that's it. And it's that because of that, it feels different to me. Yeah. Uh, that hit me throughout all these episodes that we were reading in 25. So um, I'll begin with just a summary of this last half of 25. Uh, we wrap up the attack on Enoch Village with a big display of what magic is capable of. We're introduced to what becomes a recurring battle tactic, which is tapping into the region's astral entities to aid the group in battle. In the flood that comes, Farnese and Casca become separated, which leads the group to the rift that began this whole thing to begin with, which is the cliff off. After dipping our toes in the water with trolls and ogres and kelpie, Miura plunges readers headfirst into what's basically a whole new world. This dark place gives readers a taste of what the astral world can really be like. Um... Any comments on the, this this chunk of Volume Twenty Five? Just general thoughts on the the areas we're going to touch before we get into the specific apps. Well, I'm keeping my stuff for when we go into detail. Greedy, greedy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, my comments are just, I guess, that um, a continuation from last time. I really liked seeing how the cohesion of the team kind of becomes more. Uh, you see more more aspects of it, and kind of how the the dynamic is continuing to change. I, I really like that in mm. this part. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah, I, go ahead, Azil. Sorry. If I were to say something, it's that we we get a lot of stuff in a in a few pages uh, in that in that part. <clears throat> Both as far as the fight continuing. Uh, Shiruke getting out of the of her trance. Uh, we, we the villagers, everything. There's a lot of little details uh, that flesh out the world uh, very quickly and, and very densely packed. So it's a, uh, I think it's an interesting part of uh, of the story. Yeah, I, I think to me the two big takeaways are really seeing the full potential, not the full potential, one potential of what magic can do in battle. Uh, seeing Gut's reaction to that was a big moment. Mm-hmm. His complete look of surprise, and as he realizes that it's not just tricks or small, you know, tie my hair around your finger and I can talk to you. I, that's a nice trick, nice little walkie-talkie trick. And then mm-hmm. she floods the town. It's like, oh, <laughs> this is real. Um, that was a cool moment for sure. And of course, seeing Cliffoth and uh, its little inhabitants were highlights for me uh, for this part of the series for sure. Yeah. Um, I'll go on to uh, my section. I have the first episode, which is Torrent. When we left Serpico in the past uh, episode, he had the upper hand with the Kelpie, looking really heroic with his sword jutting through its uh, bottom of its head. Uh, but the Kelpie fights back, which injuring Serpico in the process. And just as the fight reintensifies, the Kelpie begins to lose control of the water. And then the whole scene turns to Shirke as water in the whole village begins acting in strange ways. The Lady of the Depths appears over Shirke and says that she will wash away the evil spirits in the village. Shirke gathers the power of water in the region, and they flow together, forming a torrent that rushes through the village. We see Shirke controlling the water as it forms her hands, protecting houses and pushing the enemies away. Guts is shocked to see such power, saying, This is magic. As the ogre bellows it being pushed away, Guts gets in a final swipe and takes him out. Likewise, Serpico does the same with the Kelpie. The episode ends... As Isidro looks at the destruction Shirke has caused with tears of jealousy in his eyes, as he was unable to contribute on the same level as everybody else. And that's the overall episode. 
Um, some real quick points before I open it up. Um, I thought it was really cool how the Kelpie is not just a pushover. You know, Serpico stabs him right in the bottom of the head, and you think that's the end of the fight. You think he might whimper and walk away and say, screw it, these guys are too tough, I'm out of here. Nope, it sticks around, and it wants to continue the fight with an eyeball hanging out of his yeah, head. Yeah, so. that, that Kelpie <laughs> is dedicated to his craft, I have to admire. <laughs> yeah, and not, okay. just a, not just a pushover astral creature, but kind, mm. of, a, kind of a monster. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a tough and resourceful creature, for sure. Can I just say real quick that that shot with Serpico uh, jamming his sword through the Kelpie's head, I really love that shot, and I like any shot where his hair is covering one eye and he looks super serious. It reminds me of uh, that shot in the, the PlayStation 2 game when he sticks his head through the, um, the Kelpie's head, uh, sticks his sword through the Kelpie's head. There's this really cool animation where it's like, He's really like struggling and he's keeping that stern look on his face. And I thought that's really cool how they hmm. they do a lot of cool um, animations in the PlayStation 2 game. And that shot stuck out to me. Hmm. Yeah, the cinematics in that game were with a standout for me. Those the few cinematics they had. Yeah. Good. Uh, a few other things. Uh, seeing uh, Shirkate's perspective as she becomes one with the, the water. Or is it one with the Undines? Uh, it's kind of hard to say, really. But just she gets this perspective of the water's perspective as it flows through the village. And you see this massive shot of her gathering water from the whole region. It just looks really cool. And, and it really just summons uh, the look of power, uh, elemental power. It's really effective. I yeah, think. it's. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's. Uh, she's fusing with uh, the Lady of the Death. That's how uh, mm-hmm. spirit possession works in Berserk there. Just kind of become one, and that's how uh, the Lady of the Death can manifest her power through Shuke's body uh, in the world. Uh, the design of the Lady of the Depths is very cool, too. I've always really liked how the water splashes outward, kind of from the center, kind of covering her arms, and her arms are water, of course. Just the splash effect while still forming limbs is just really, really cool looking. Mm. Yeah, I, I like her look a lot. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Zio. No, I was just gonna say, and when when she's possessed, uh, and Shuke is uh, well, fucking up the trolls and the ogre, we see that two-page spread of her hands forming out of the water, which I think is really, really amazing. You can you can feel the tremendous blow. Uh, like she's dealing with the ogre uh, when it stumbles back, and before when it's fighting with guts. It's really shown to be a sturdy, uh, you know, big fella that's not gonna fall down easily. So get, seeing him get just slapped back like that, it really gives you a good um, demonstration of what kind of power she's wielding, the, the power of that river. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll be honest, I don't know that I've ever noticed her fingers uh, forming from the water wow. before I re- this reread. I know. I was shocked myself. I was like, how have I never noticed that? Damn. It's because there's so much happening in that two-page spread. Um, the depth of focus is just like everything's in focus. And so there's a lot happening. I'm like, I never no- never noticed those spouts were her fingers. Mm. Oh. Uh, pretty pretty obvious now that now that you see it. Well, it is, uh, it is somewhat, how to say, subtle. Because the way Miura designs it is really like an extension of the world, which makes it kind of more realistic. It's not like like a fully formed human limb is coming out. It's really more 
of a yeah an extension like the water jutting as that formed her hands but mm -hmm. if you look at the bottom right panel you can see that when she first does that move her hands also push uh, uh towards the house a house mm -hmm. you see that little move and then she does that counter kind of swing and blast that big you know big move yeah yeah that's the beauty of the reread is that you notice all these things Mm. Yeah, it forces me to slow down mm -hmm. um, and kind of relook at things that my 22-year-old self didn't notice back then, that <laughs> my much older person now can notice. Uh, I thought it was interesting. There's two things about Serpico's fight with the Kelpie, other than the fact that it fought back, is that it's uh, it's kind of a, what's the word, uh, incidental injury that he gets. It wasn't that the Kelpie injured him. He got pushed back by into the trolls, and he got injured in this way where... He landed on a troll's mace, basically, right? It's kind of like mm. collateral damage of being pushed back. That's what caused him to have this injury. I thought that was an interesting choice that Mira didn't want the Kelpie to injure him. But he gets this injury from an incidental thing. I guess it just shows how messy that battle was, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's also like if it's realistic that he would fall <laughs> onto the spikes and that would uh, wound him pretty seriously just because of the strength of that fall. The other thing is, after that injury, um, Serpico says that he was careless, and he actually just very, you have to look real carefully, you don't really see it until you see it, but he drops his you know primary uh, sword and starts using the feather sword only. I wonder why he swapped right then. I guess because he knew he was going to have to use the power of the feather sword to, to finish the fight, maybe? Uh, I don't know. It, it seems strange that he just dropped that sword to focus on the feather sword then. Well, yeah, I think uh, at that point he probably figured um, he wouldn't get enough reach with his normal sword to be able to do it. The further sword, he needs to swing, but it's not his actual physical strength that does the damage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's the uh, wind elementals, so that, that might be why. There's a logic to it. And also, right. he's at reach being able to strike from much farther. Uh, the last thing I have is about the Kelpie uh, kind of losing control of the water around it, which is something that Shirke had hinted about uh, when the Kelpie first arrived. It, it said that it controls, you know, I think it says something, she says something like mid-level, you know, water or something like that. Um, and she implies that a larger power would be able to overwhelm it. And which is, which is basically what happens here is that something else comes that can control the water. That's, you know, way more powerful than just the Kelpie and, seizes control of the undines in the area. Mm -hmm. There's a little foreshadow moment there. Yeah. Uh, that's all I really had for this one. Uh, anybody else take the floor? Sure. Well, um, I really do like, you mentioned it, but I really do like that, uh, that shot of guts, uh, when seeing the devastation, uh, brought about by the, the water, uh, realizing the tremendous power of magic, it's kind of the reverse of Shiruke earlier seeing his power as a black swordsman. And, uh, and yeah, I really like that, that shot of him. I, I don't think the way you put it earlier was that before he saw it as just little tricks and stuff like that. I think he respected it before, but seeing that actual full power and the damage it can do, yeah, it leaves an impression on him. And, and I think it's, uh, that shot is really well done. And how to say, in just one page, you can see how it makes its way into his head and how it uh, rebalances his understanding of, of what's possible 
what's you know being able to be done, that kind of stuff. And kind of the same goes for Isidro's awe and frustration at the power Shiroke wields uh, while he himself couldn't do anything during that battle. I think it's really well depicted in just a few shots. And, um, and that's what I meant earlier when I said this part of the, of the story is very dense because you get just a few shots each time in between action shots and that really deepens, uh, and develops characters and what we know about the world. Yeah, I didn't mention uh, Isidro here, but I may as well, because uh, it kind of goes, it kind of bleeds into the next few apps as well. Um, you know, he's jealous because he was basically a bystander here. He wasn't able to, to do what he wanted to do, to, you know, to be one of the big heroes, you know, doing, out there doing great things. That's my reading of it anyway. When yeah. When he has those tears in his eyes. And, and there's a fact, he, he's a, he's just a kid. So it's normal. He can't be like guts, but Shuke is also a kid. She's about his age. And she can do that. And so it also, it, it's a validation of what she's been saying the whole time that he's just a, a monkey. Uh, he's not, he's not very useful. Uh, and so, yeah, that's kind of a really check for him that maybe he needs to, uh, dial down the arrogance and get brutal and try to focus, uh, and get better because he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's not done very good so far. Yeah, it's a really relatable thing because, you know, even from an elemental perspective, you can see that this is like a a very heavily water concentrated fight. So even if he were using his dagger with the with the salamanders, he would be at a at a disadvantage on top of the fact that he's not you know, at a spot where he's very experienced right now. So reading it, it's sort of like, wow, you can really feel that feeling where we've all been there where you're sort of like, oh, I really want to do this or I want to do that. Or you want to get better at something really quickly, but you realize that you're just not there yet. And that's a frustrating feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Just being outclassed completely by someone else, which you cannot see as a rival. And then they just... So far away ahead of you, you're like, damn, am I just, yeah. am I just like completely useless? Is this the limit of my ability? Right. Yeah, I, I think that kind of thing is particularly um, difficult for kids who are still forming their identities. Uh, and Sidro's identity is being challenged basically by seeing uh, this level of power where he has this admittedly cool little dagger uh, and spinning attack that's not quite mastered yet, but... And then he sees this happen. Yeah, and, and he's got... That's also a thing. Is he, there's many things Isidro can do. And we, we see that during the Conviction arc, where he plays a pretty important role. He's uh, sneaky. He's fast. He's very accurate when he throws things. He's resourceful. He's He's got guts, you know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> literally, he's, he's pretty <laughs> courageous. Uh, but yeah, at the same time, here he's in a situation where he's, he's just completely outclassed. And it's interesting because... When you compare his reaction to God's reaction, God's yeah. he takes stock of that power and he's also uh, astonished by it. He's you know he sees that it's, it's very impressive, it's awesome in the literal sense of the word. Uh, but God's is also like supremely confident in his own abilities. He knows what he can do. He knows what he can't do. He knows when to go around something he can't beat head-on, because he's got that kind of experience and he's that kind of character. And Isidro is just too young at that point in the story 
uh, yeah, to know his uh, his true value and and what he can do and what he can't do, which is pretty interesting because when you think back to uh, episode three hundred and sixty three in that forest, he 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 comments on some things like the fact Shuke is powerful but she's slow, slow to move, uh, and so you can tell that. His uh, own mental space, he's evolved a bit and he's more in tune with his own abilities, that of others, what he can do better than others, what he can't do as well as others. So that's that's interesting to see that progression. Speaking of moving uh, to your advantage, I, I really liked the shot also where uh, the ogre is kind of getting swept away by the torrent of water and then Guts kind of swoops in and gives him the old sliceroo. Yeah. <laughs> and and I love that shot cuz it looks like Guts is almost part of the water there, just the way it's shown and he just <laughs> gets in there, does this huge sweeping cut and then he he grabs onto some branches. He's like, "Oh my god." <laughs> just wanting to finish the job, right? Yeah. Admittedly, it was, I mean, it's kind of hard to tell exactly what was how fast things were moving, but the ogre you know, he was gripping onto the remains of a house or a tree or something. So it was ostensibly crawling back into the fight. And Guts is like, nope, I don't think so, buddy. Yeah, yeah, that's You're true. Out. Is that uh, the way it's depicted, uh, because Yogur is uh, holding onto that wooden beam, uh, probably the foundation of a house, he would have been able to weather the torrent and then like keep going. So just Guts just put an end to that uh, to prevent any problem. And then Serpico falls suit with the Kelpie. What a great cut, too. Look at that nice laser cut uh, Kelpie neck. Yeah, that's yeah. right. In a butcher shop. Power of the <laughs> wind, man. Just slice yeah. right through. Uh, Grail, take it away for the next one. All right. Well, next episode is called Shaman. Uh, continuing directly after the last episode, we open with the torrent of water bursting through Enoch, taking trolls, buildings, and trees with it. The villagers, Guts, and the rest of the companions look on in awe as Shirke continues to channel the water spirit. Isidro's look of disappointment seems like the only unhappy face in the crowd. Morgan, who seems to have been treated for his injury, looks on knowingly. Farnese tries to get Shirke to snap out of her trance, but Evilera warns her not to disturb her, explaining that she's been mesmerized by the water spirit, but she can be brought back by rhythmic tapping of her witch's staff. We then cut to Shirke in the astral world, who is indeed tied up with all the water spirits' conflicting emotions as the torrent sweeps through the village. Farnese's tapping recalls Flora's teachings, and Shirke returns to see Farnese and Casca falling together off the roof of the temple, having lost their footing after uh, Shirke came back. Or as Shirke was coming back. Despite the efforts of Guts, who hangs onto a tree trunk nearby, Farnese and Casca are swept away by the torrent hanging onto a tree. Sometime later, the flood has abated and the villagers return to assess the damage. Guts and Isidro come back from a search for Casca and Farnese, and neither of them have been able to find them. Shirke searches for their odd, while berating herself for giving herself over to the water spirit. Guts puts a reassuring hand on her shoulder, reminding her that she won't be able to find them if she's tense. He also praises her work in saving the village and explains that nobody blames her for what happened. 
In a brief moment of levity, Shirke seems embarrassed by Guts's words, and we get a goofy little exchange between Evalera. I really like this part because she's calling Puck and Isidro two dumbasses, but then Puck is like, I can't believe that she called Guts and Isidro two dumbasses. <laughs> uh, I love that part. Uh, Shirke has located Farnese and Casca's odd and it appears that they're unharmed. While the group heads out to find them, the final page leaves us with the possibility of great danger, as Farnese and Casca have been carted away by the trolls on the tree trunk, supposedly the one they were clinging to earlier. Uh, I like this part a lot because it does a great job of reminding the reader that the trolls aren't directly able to touch Farnese and Casca because of their silver chainmail, but they're clever enough to know how to use the tree trunk as a tool to cart them away. And they still present a significant threat. Um, Yeah. But yeah, continuing from the last episode, I liked that Mira kind of showed Isidro again, like struggling with uh, Shirke being successful in in saving the village. But she kind of shows that Morgan kind of knows how he feels and he's looking on it. You kind of feel like that, that, that conversation is coming up. And uh, uh, I guess another thing I was thinking about was the title of the episode, Shaman. Uh, it's, it's just kind of uh, literally taking the, the interaction between Shirke and the, the water spirit. It's, uh, the dictionary definition is a person regarded as having access to and influence in the world of good and evil spirits. Typically, such people enter a trance-like state during a ritual and practice divination and healing. And that's exactly what happened, is that she went into a trance and and, uh, channeled the Lady Mm. of the Depths. So that was a kind of a cool little tidbit. Yeah, it is interesting that he chose to use that instead of what he traditionally uses. Uh, You know, witch, magic user, whatever he wants to call it. And just chose that in Katakana to probably emphasize the kind of uh, power that she was tapping into in this scene. I think it's because it's spirit summoning. And... um, yeah, it's interesting. Even the way uh, they recall uh, Shiuke back from the astral world with tapping seven times and, and repeating that sequence three times. You know, the number seven is a number associated with magic. So all these little elements are things that Mira uh, went and took from actual real world. Uh, I'm doing air quotes here, but magic uh, rituals to lend things uh, uh, some credibility. So it, it, it's interesting the way he, he does it. But uh, yeah, to me, it makes perfect sense because uh, it's a spirit possession. She's calling on to spirits to act on her behalf. It, it makes sense with the, the principles of shamanism. The 777 thing in particular, that's like a spiritually significant number number in a, a number of different religions. I know, I know just from... Judaism and Christianity, it's a special number. I think it's also a special number in the occult for some reason. I don't really remember. Yep. But. Yep, for sure. Yeah. Uh, What else? I thought it was really neat the way that Shirke awakens by kind of focusing in on Flora's uh, teaching, remembering that specific teaching. And then she comes back in this like rush, uh, this, this panel. It really reminds me of volume 27 when Shirke helps Guts you know, recover from being lost in uh, the odd of the armor as well. A similar moment where they're lost and they had to be, come back to reality. Yeah. In this kind of dream sequence type way. Yeah, and it's also, it's a way to um, expose us to Frost teaching and Ho Shiruke 
gain her knowledge and abilities uh, through yeah through her master. The I can't help but wonder, uh, you know, when Shirke becomes lost in the astral world, unable to return to her body. Um, I can't help but wonder how that would have manifested elsewhere in the series. Maybe Mira only meant to apply this kind of thing here. Um, we see her in uh, Vertanis kind of doing the similar kind of thing, but it's not a problematic like it is here, where it really is like a momentary challenge to bring her back. I wonder what the extreme of that looks like. You know, an actual out-of-body experience being broken, the astral spirit or astral body being lost. Well, to the physical body. Ivarla talks about it. She says that if she were to be interrupted, her spirit might not return into a body and that she could become an invalid. So No, no, I know. What I'm saying is I wonder if that ever was to be manifested in the series, to actually see that extreme instead of just talking uh, about it, that's all. No, I don't think so. I mean, well, that's a good question. That's a good question. Who knows, in the future, in, some, in, a, yeah. in an extreme situation? Maybe. It's just, it's very like Miura to, um, what's the word, to take a concept and then go to extremes with it, to introduce something and then to push it even further to, you know, beyond what you might think. Uh, so, yeah, I just made me wonder if that if, if we were to ever to hear or see something else like that. It always it's, opens it's, up some interesting possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting thought. Well, I think, I mean, not being able to return to a body at all, that would be, I mean, that would be too much, right? But maybe, yeah, having been blocked and having to work around that, uh, yeah, why not? That, that would have been interesting. Uh, I didn't quite know the, understand the flow of things until I was reading this one time. But the reason that uh, Farnese and Casca fall from the top of the church is because a house collapses which then rams into the the temple, and the temple then shakes, causing them to fall. That's how I read that yeah. sequence of events. Yeah, that's what happens. That house we see on the previous page, it falls down like it crumbles, and then it's brought up by the torrent of water and hits the side of the wall. And then that roof, we see that some uh, some of the roof uh, collapses. Casca falls down. Uh, um, Farnese tries to catch her, and she falls herself. And then we see that... Uh, when they, they grab onto the tree trunk, it's because Shiroke pushes it towards her with a hand as well. It's not mm-hmm. something that they do by chance. So it's also, again, we see her raise her hand and we see that little, within the water, we see traces of her hand pushing the, the tree trunk towards them. Oh, that's very cool. I missed that when I was taking my notes. Mm-hmm. The following page is something that Mira rarely does, which is have the sound effect layered on top of the text. It's kind of a oh, novel yeah. way to use yeah. it. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Yeah, to to show that uh, even though they're yelling, it's drawn out mm-hmm. by the sound. Yeah, yeah, that's a great that's a great effect. I, I like the next page as well, where you just see the skies clear, and uh, we take like we've got an higher view of the village, which is. Pretty small, all things considered, and uh, we take stock of the damage. Uh, it's, it's pretty pretty ruined, so that's interesting. It's not as fucked up as I thought. Most of the houses are still standing. Yeah, considering an ogre was stomping around there, <laughs> it doesn't look too bad. Yeah, they're all alive. That's the goal. Yeah, there's a guy in the previous episode that says, My house! You know, yeah. At that moment. <laughs> um I do like how Guts reassures Shirke. We show this side of Guts that, you know, we don't see a whole lot. Uh, It's always there. It's always him. But, you know, reassures her, don't be so tense. If you're tense, you won't be able to do what you can. Kind of a big brother in this moment, you know, looking at her like that. Yeah, it's also, it's interesting because 
he's with Isidro, he's a he's a little more I wouldn't say distant, but you know, it's man to man. So mm-hmm. he's he's got he encourages him but in kind of a slightly tough way. And with Serpico and Farnese, he doesn't have that kind of relationship. But here with Shirke, we see maybe the beginning of him being more, um, you know, softening up a bit and be like you say, like kind of a big brother, a mentor. Uh, and actually it helps her. It's also a way to show that while she's got all that scholarly uh, knowledge and all that stuff, he's uh, on the field experience uh, also allows her to, yeah, to be able to relax, focus, and then do what she, she knows how to do and succeed at that. That's a really good yeah. point. Actually, speaking on that point, I really like the kind of the contrast between Shirke and Isidro in this part, because like we were talking about, Isidro is really frustrated that he couldn't do more. And it, it's interesting that even though Shirke did so much in the last couple of episodes, she's still like beating herself up. And, and maybe that's why uh, Guts is treating them differently, because he seems to understand maybe that Shirke needs somebody to tell her, hey, it's okay, you don't need to beat yourself up. Whereas with Isidro, he kind of needs to give him a nudge and say, hey, you need to focus on this or do this. There's a lot of really cool effects in this uh, episode. Yeah. Um, Like when Shirke's in the astral world, there's a lot of like just clouds you can see. And I think that you know, like the swirling clouds and everything just like looks really cool. And uh, yeah, I, I always enjoy how Amira depicts magic, spiritual things and that sort of stuff. Yeah, even when she senses uh, Farazi and Casca's uh, odd, you see that uh, little wave effect, uh, kind of like a sound wave or that kind of thing. That's, that's also an interesting... Uh... Oh yeah, the ripple. Yeah, ripple effects. That's that's an interesting, interesting way to portray it. This moment when Shirka gets caught up, uh, Gobs, you were just mentioning it when we see the, the overwhelming text where she's basically, you know, becoming one with the water, and she senses this furious, you know, desire to surge and flow, and she senses anger in there, in the water, and presumably it's because it's been, you know, this whole area has been repressed by the Holy See's stamp on this, you know, that was part of what, I mean, it's addressed in this next episode. I'm kind of stepping on the toes of it, but like, yeah, we're seeing that represented in the sense of an intense flow of odd in that page. Like it's becoming, it's become this angry thing when it's supposed to be more natural, presumably. Well, uh, yeah, I I think you are maybe misremembering a bit. But uh, we'll talk about it in the next episode. <laughs> okay. Because- then take it away. All right. So, yeah, uh, the next episode is called uh, Kurifot. So it's interesting because the kanji for it is Yami, darkness. But then there's a katakana Kurifoto uh, in between parentheses, which refers to um, the Kabbalah concept of uh, yeah, Kulifot. That's how it's pronounced, even though it's TH at the end. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, the episode starts with the villagers expressing their gratitude to Shirke, which is a far cry from how they originally welcomed her. And she explained to them that the four kings of the astral world are present in the scriptures of the Odyssey as the four archangels corresponding to the cardinal points. She also reveals that the Lady of the Death was once worshipped by the humans living on this land, but that she was forgotten over time as a cult of the Holy, Holy See gained prominence. 
And what you were referring to, Walter, is the fact that she had been forgotten and was called on after such a long time. Partly explains why the torrent was so forceful, but then Shiroki also reflects on how her own anger towards the village just played a part. Because she was angry with them, it also played a, a part into why it was so forceful. And I think that's what you were uh, maybe a, a little bit remembering about this. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, the priest agrees to build a small shrine to the leader of the death on the village plaza, having had his mind open to the realities of the world. Uh, moving on a little bit, we'll come back on that. Uh, we see that Isidro is sulking, uh, reflecting his poor performance during the battle, and Morgan hands him uh, a sword his father uh, won for a sailor long ago. Um, we see that Serpico is seriously wounded, not in danger of dying, but he can't fight, and so the group lives without him. Uh, as they get deeper into the forest, uh, they notice that it's changing, uh, somewhat in the opposite way to how it changes uh, when they got to Flaw's place. And Shiruki explains that they are entering a domain of darkness within the astral world, which is the Clifford. Because the astral world and corporate worlds overlap each other into the specific spots, human beings can perceive astral creatures as if they had physical body, while normally they can only be perceived by the mind. And that's why the trolls are able to invade and so on. And the episode ends with Shiroke saying that if astral beings were to exist in the corporate world, uh, the world would be transformed before checking herself and saying that perhaps it has already started uh, with the incarnation of Femto, which uh, gets a reaction from Guts. Even though she doesn't mention the name, he knows what it is. So it's actually pretty... There's a lot of things in this episode. So I mentioned we get an explanation about how the Holy See kind of took over uh, from the worship of spirits that existed beforehand, which is interesting because it mirrors what happened in the real world with uh, monotheistic religions. Uh, you know, in Japan, for example, they've got Shintoism, which is a, a syncretic uh, religion. It's a kind of amalgamation of many different beliefs. And then you've also got uh, animism in Africa, for example, which was taken over again by... Uh, uh, you know, whether it is Christianism, uh, Judaism, uh, you know, Islam, uh, they've, they've all kind of taken over and, and those old beliefs uh, fell into disarray. And so that that's kind of mirrors it. Uh, the way it's, it's explained here is that we got these spirits who were worshipped long ago. And over time, uh, they fell into, they become forgotten as a cult of the Holy See gained prominence. Um, it's interesting that we see some women in the village even entertain the thought of becoming witchings, witches themselves. Uh, yeah. Shiruke tells them that while learning magic requires extensive training, there are things that are pretty easy to do for anyone, like uh, mental visualization, uh, the true form of prayer, as we, we learned in the previous um, episodes we saw in the previous podcast. And their priest now knows uh, what these are. And of course, this little exchange is actually uh, kind of a forewarning of what's to come with Farnese, even though at the time, I'm pretty sure nobody, no fan at all, could have ever expected Farnese to become a, a witch. But that's, that's interesting. That idea is that with training, pretty much anyone can do it, and that 
even without training, there are things that anybody can do. Uh, moving to Isidro and his uh, reflection on his poor performance during the battle, uh, it's pretty interesting, his exchange with Morgan. Uh, for the record, the sword uh, Morgan hands him is called the Badelaire. Uh, it's a curved short sword uh, used by sailors in this case. Kind of similar to a cutlass, but more specifically because of the guard, it's called a, a Badelaire. Um, it's easier to handle for him, much easier and more appropriate for the type of dual wielding he's trying to achieve, which also it's a way to retroactively kind of excuse his poor performance because he wasn't properly equipped. Morgan also reveals that when he met Flores those years ago, he was actually running away from the village. He wasn't just looking for a cure for his mother. He was trying to escape those conditions. And so that's, that's kind of a parallel with what Isidro is doing. Even so, Isidro is you know, grateful for the sword, but unimpressed by the story and by Morgan's attempt at wisdom and relating with him. He explains that his ambition is a real deal and he doesn't care about his, his old man's tale. Um, on Serpico's side, uh, it's, in- it's also yeah interesting to see. We see that great shot of him. Um, his eyes are not shown when he's lying down, <clears throat> but he looks very, I don't know if it's very dramatic to me, very serious, that he basically tells Guts uh, they have to go rescue Farnese right away, is that he's interesting her uh, safety to them. And we see that reaction of Guts uh, where he's just wordless reaction, just taking stock of, of it. I, I think it says a lot, and uh, it shows how their relationship also evolves. Um, and similarly, as they leave, we see uh, Isidro clenching his fist because he's still ashamed and he basically doesn't dare to come. But Gus very casually tells him to hurry up and that breaks uh, that kind of sullen mood and hesitancy. I think that's a really great moment. And to me, it's something that Gus definitely intended to do. Like he noticed it and he did it on purpose. And it's kind of a mirroring with who he did with Shiroki earlier on, you know, that kind of uh, just softening up, managing people in a relatively subtle way. And it's interesting because it shows all the all that's accomplished and all the ways he's developed since, uh, for example, Volume 21, when he was still just a Black Swordsman going at it alone. And now he's he's back to who he was when he was uh, less traumatized, let's say, by the events of the eclipse. Um, moving on to the forest, um, so Shirky explains that she's following the residual art from the trolls, which is uh, an information we know that since can leave a, a trace uh, and, and they can be followed. She can feel that Farz and Casca are unconscious and also that they are unharmed, thanks to the silver chain mail which is, again, what uh, Gray was saying earlier. The trolls carried them on the trunk because they couldn't touch them, and that explains why they are not uh, harmed. Um, When they get to the Clifforth proper, they catch a glimpse of a small creature that's just basically a little face on legs. It's called a Chimimorio, which uh, is a small goblin from Japanese folklore. It's It's a very complex name, actually. It's four kanji. Uh, if anybody knows a bit about Asian languages and knows that four Chinese characters is a, is a common thing. It's more widely known, of course, by the nickname Walter gave him, uh, way back then when that episode came out, which is Schnoz. 
due to his pr- prominent nose. So yeah, I felt I had to go over that because it's a surprisingly popular character. On Twitter, it's almost bigger than Berserk because I see it used all the time. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, ind- independent of Berserk. He's a real star of the show. People don't even know. And what's incredible is that Walter, you basically just call the schnoz because it's got a big nose and that's it. It's got a big schnoz. And, <laughs> yeah. and that, that's, I mean, that was in like uh, 2003 or something. Uh, on that just. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know what the kanji was. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I mean, the name is, is the name is, the kanji is super complex. And it's a, it's a type of creature. So Chimi Morio is not just him. It refers to all these small creatures of darkness. All of them are that class of being called Chimi Morio. And just mean a, a small type of goblins that lives in rivers and forests. It's a, it's a type of yokai, basically, in Japanese folklore. And it's, it's not very common at all. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's funny that it took these proportions. He's too cute to be here, though. Look at these other losers yeah, in, this, yeah. in this dark place. Yeah, he's yeah. he's great. And we see, I mean, we see that great scene with uh, Puck and Ivarla trying to ride him. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're like doing a rodeo. He throws them down. It's 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 a, it's a whole story within a story because uh, he manages to escape their their dominion. So yeah, it's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. Uh, yeah, we, Shiroki also explains something pretty important about the astral world. Uh, which is that there are several territories, not even several, but many territories within it. Um, that's how it works. So we know it, it's got layers. And as you get deeper and deeper, uh, the scenery changes and you get to beings who are unrecognizable from humans, just nothing common with what exists in the corporeal world. But we also know that there are territories in its various layers. And each has its own atmosphere and attracts certain types of beings. And that's why the Clifos, which is a territory of darkness, uh, attracts uh, dark spirits. While uh, Frost Place, for example, was much warmer and kinder, milder, that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, it, it's, uh, it expands our understanding of, of the astral world and, and how, it's, uh, how it's composed. She also explains um, <clears throat> when there's like, these little shots where you see kids looking at the dark. Um, she explains that the w- reason trolls can be seen and the ogre can be seen is because the, the astral world and the corporate world are now overlapping each other in such a way that uh, human beings can perceive these creatures as if they had physical body, while normally... Yeah, it can only be perceived by the mind. So through dreams, through reveries, uh, you know, daydreaming, that kind of stuff. And, um, and it's again kind of foreboding that if the whole world were to become in that state, it would be a dramatic, uh, change, even cataclysmic, which of course, uh, well, we get to see with Fantasia. So that's very interesting. And again, it ends with uh, the reminder that Femto's incarnation, his advent in the corporate world, is what started this process. So that's about all I had to say. Sorry I talked a lot. Uh, what do you guys think about this? Oh, boy. Where to begin? It's a that's lot. A, it's a, a lot. lore lasagna. Yeah. It is. It's a very dense <laughs> And I even one for forgot sure. one thing. is that Shuke reveals that magical items they grant, she granted to the group get tied to their user and that their power uh, gets more attuned and grows over time. So see, she mentioned uh, in Rito to 
Puck's joke that he wanted to borrow the the wind cape from Serpico. <laughs> <laughs> right, they have an affinity. They begin to have an affinity for it. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I guess to continue what I was trying to say earlier and failing to is that I think it's interesting that the astral world and humanity, that this relationship that's established, we kind of saw the result of humanity turning its back on astral the astral world in that when the Lady of the Depth was summoned, she came out roughly and forcefully and Shirke wasn't able to contain it. And she apologizes for that. And she's, But she also says to herself that the feelings that she had towards the villagers is what allowed that to happen. She kind of like masks that part of it that, you know, she had that similar feeling and they kind of worked together to have result in this big backlash, which I thought was what I think is very interesting is that the astral world isn't this neutral state of, Oh, sure. Call upon my power. No problem. Humanity is cool. (laughs) It is also this like it's colored by that treatment uh, from humans. At least that's my reading of it. Yeah. And it's uh, it's also shows that both the feelings of the spirit and the feelings and experience of the magician can uh, have enough an effect on the resulting power being used. In this case, right. Shuki and the spirit boss were kind of pissed at the at the guys, and so that that you know ended up like that. But uh, yeah, it's interesting, Shuki. We see later on that, for example, she has to uh, call upon dangerous spirits, and because she's more experienced, she manages to handle the power better. I'm thinking, for example, about the flaming wheel. Yeah, it's also a mental control thing, and she is young and inexperienced, and just independent of being a magic user, just still, you know, a young girl who's still learning how to deal with people. And this give, you know, that established a foothold uh, to make this a rougher spell than it would have been mm. normally. I really like Morgan's scene um, because just the, the fact that he addresses dreams and ambitions and for him, you know, wanting to escape the village and do something heroic was really just a way of ignoring his responsibilities. And he's kind of trying to, understand Isidro uh, if he's using the same lens or is Isidro doing the same thing but Isidro maintains that no my ambition is real and I'll, I'll show you you know which uh, is interesting I wonder I wonder <laughs> yeah <laughs> did that, run away from home that is a really interesting detail because I think that if Mira had had left that out that bit about Morgan you know kind of running away I think you know you could you could get away with leaving that part out but putting it in I feel like it's such a it adds so much more to the character and, and thereby adds so much more to this conversation with Isidro. It's really cool. Yeah, and it's interesting that Isidro because Morgan, what he's saying is basically running away from him was a, a cowardly thing in the end. He wasn't so much going for adventure as he was running away from his problems. And Isidro is like supremely certain that it's not his case. He's got an ambition that he will see through and it's got nothing to do with running away. Like he ran from his family because he didn't want to live a shitty life uh, and he wanted to do something great and become someone great. Uh, Whereas Morgan's case is just, it's closer to Serpico. He was burdened uh, by his family, uh, his sick mother, that kind of thing. So it's, it's interesting. You know, even... Almost places Isidro uh, as a parallel to Griffiths to me. Someone who's got an ambition and is willing to do a lot to uh, make it true. 
Wow, that's a that's a good point. I didn't think about that in relation to Serpico. I guess there are a lot of layers of parallels between the characters that make them more similar than they themselves realize if you pay attention. Yeah. Yeah, Isidro's is not reactionary in the same way that Morgan's is. Morgan's is, as you said, Azil, that he feels burdened, and so he strikes out to escape that burden. Whereas with Isidro, it was really more like he saw his life, he saw where it was taking him, and he wanted more out of life. And so he struck out on his own. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, contrast that with Guts, and, you know, who his whole life was relatively reactionary. You know, he responded to things, yeah. which is... Not necessarily the same as Hachidros. But Guts didn't have a choice. That's also the thing. He <laughs> was, that's all he knew from, like, from age three. He was thrust into, into that kind of life. It's a very, yeah, very, very, very tough, uh, very tough life. And interestingly, like you said, he, he did not get a choice. Whereas Isidro chose to go out and live that kind of life. So interesting. Uh, you mentioned it already, but the way that he hand, he the guts handles Asidro, it's like that he in just in passing Asidro, guts could read him and know what was on his mind and how he was feeling, and that's why he addresses Asidro in that way with, "We'll leave you, come on," you know. Yeah. Asidro knows, "All right, I'm coming too." It's it's so different from even the the initial kind of team up scene where guts is like, "Well, if you want to come, then come. If you don't want to come, yeah. then don't come." Like he's actually saying, "No, you should come." Mm-hmm. He's kind of like in a tough way, you know, bringing him into the fold. Like, come on, let's go. Yeah, yeah. And not um, and not commenting on his failure. That's also a thing. Right. He could have said, "You were useless." I mean, he might not even have had time to notice uh, what he was doing in the in the temple or anything. But yeah, just the fact he doesn't address it is just okay. Let's go. I'm not expecting you to do miracles, but you're useful and you get you get things done. So come along. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, the look of the Cliffoth is something that stands out to me from the rest of the series. Um, <laughs> lots of detail. It's like, you remember that volume 22 when Millennium Falcon started? We had that big mysterious forest. Yeah. The trees seem larger than life and they have so much texture to them. This is another moment where the little folds and roots and, you know, tree grain or sliminess all comes across and the, the, the visuals really sell this as feeling very. What's the word? Evocative of a place. Yeah. Um, on on one of the just after we see uh, Dashnaz, uh, we get a, a two page spread where you, we see kind of roots in uh, some kind of muddy water, like a pond. It's almost like a swamp, and I mean it might be a swamp actually. And mm-hmm. yeah, just seeing these creatures crawling in it and everything, it's got a very, it's a very strong horror vibe and. Um, I mean, people often talk about uh, Berserk as a horror series, and there's not there's not that much horror elements in Berserk. They just show up punctually, and uh, and yeah, but when they show, they're usually really amazing. And I, I feel like the Cliff Force is uh, is an example of that. We get some really amazing horror shots that uh, I mean would probably even make uh, Ito Junji envious. You know, these creatures. I mean, where did Mira come up with these things? It's uh, it's crazy. <laughs> It's, it's it, it, it keeps so going nasty. Too, into, the, <laughs> yeah. into the next episode as well. Like these, the portrayal um, of the linkage between astral. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping way ahead. I'm talking about the designs. Um, they're all so unique. There's no re- repetition here, except when there's intended repetition. I think there's one where in the next episode it looks like there's a a little baby one and a, and a data or a mama one next to it, for example, like a family <laughs> of these little monsters. But other than that, all these creatures it's are, just a whole are very distinct. 
Honestly, yeah. when I saw this, I was just thinking to myself, you know, the trolls ain't so bad. Trolls are okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't like the, I don't like the giant tarantula with the human face. I don't like <laughs> the sea anemones with the human fingers. Like, please get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And what's interesting? Uh, yeah, and go ahead. No, I was just saying. What's interesting is that if you look at, uh, I mean, it's I don't know, it's close to the end of the episode. We see in the background there's uh, a couple of uh, incubi uh, flying in the background. And it's also a way for Mira to, to, to say, you see these creatures that have been there, uh, right from volume one. Well, they're, they're also at their place there. So it's also a very, how to say, uh, small and, but nuanced connection, uh, with the rest of the series that creatures like that dwell in the, in the cliffhot and that's where they come from. And, uh, and I found that interesting, you know, among all these new designs that are just specific to the place. Yeah. There's um there's one section in this episode that has tripped people up ever since this episode came out, but I think Dark Horse's translation makes it even more confusing. Uh and it's the way that they talk about human perception of astral creatures like these. And Shirke is talking about how right now the astral and physical worlds are overlapping. Azil, you already addressed it, but I just wanted to make it crystal clear uh that this image of the child looking through, peering through the, through a window as he's sleeping, the image itself tells the story. I mean, I, I can go into the what's actually happening, but I think the visuals alone make it quite clear that dreams provide a window into this world. Uh, whereas the misconception that I often see is based on the translation we see, which is they were originally inhabitants of our mental world, which makes it sound like that they humans created them. That mm. dreams are a creation engine for mm. nightmare creatures like this. But that's not what's happening. Dreams are a way that humans can perceive these things through their mind because normally we shouldn't be able to perceive them. The, but th th that lack of perception is the whole point of this scene. Shirke is explaining that now this this strange phenomenon is happening where we can perceive them. So um, I think that's pretty important to clear up because I, I see that to this day. When we talk about where did astral creatures come from, people say, oh, well, they came from, from humans. Humans created everything in the astral world. Like, mm, no, I don't think that's... The case, though, but I think it's this translation that makes that uh, more confusing for people. Mm. That's it. Just wanted to clear that up. Uh, also, when Shirke alludes to basically what would happen uh, if these things continue to uh, break out, and she says that the world will uh, be would, the world would be transformed, and it's like the writing was on the wall right then. That you know that was what Fantasia would be. Uh, this on mass was basically what was coming uh and then you know ultimately that is what happens 10 volumes later basically the world is transformed and it is like a place like this like cliff off but now established firmly in the physical world yeah just to be clear i think uh when when we are drew this episode he already planned for that mm -hmm. to happen he already planned for for the world to be transformed like that yeah. I agree. Uh, I, I'm thinking from the reader's perspective. I don't know that I anticipated Fantasia no. uh, to be quite like that. Yeah, I mean, that's always the thing is uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? When we look back, we can see, oh, all these little things sprinkled here and there. Like, it's pretty obvious he had that in mind. But at the time when you follow episode to episode, there's already so many things to try. I mean, at the time we were... Uh, preoccupied with like things that might seem trivial now. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I think we've talked about that before, but even Slan emerging from the pool of blood 
was not something everybody was so sure about. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to see, uh, when you look back and try to see the author's intent and, and you, you notice all these little details that make it pretty clear he knew what he was doing. But for us, it's just, I mean, at the time, even when you're a careful reader, it just, you know, goes right over your head or way above your uh, level of detection. So you, you just don't notice it at all. And I think even in recent episode, it was the same thing. Lots of stuff yeah, always. was being seeded uh, that would have uh, been ripped uh, later on and that people were just completely oblivious, oblivious to. Yeah, I mean, we get wrapped up in things like, who's this vid guy? Was vid void? Yeah. <laughs> Instead of everything else that's happening. Yeah, that stuff. one was embarrassing. <laughs> I blame you for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. Jeez. Uh, I'll take over for the next one, unless anybody else has anything. Um, I was just going to point out that going back to the scene with Serpico, uh, where he says, Lady Farnese is in your care, uh, I really liked that part because, of course, for... Um, Serpico is so devastated by not being able to help. I think that the shot of guts underneath that, and as you did touch on this, I felt it was really uh, poignant and appropriate because, you know, guts has just been there. And uh, going into the next episode, we kind of see how uh, Farnese is able to take care of herself and Casca a little bit, but uh, it, it must have been difficult and it also shows the parallel between guts and serpico in that part yeah mm. yeah for sure so the fact they've bought uh, got somebody to protect um yeah i think it's not lost on guts for sure so the next episode is um contamination the group descends deeper into cliffoth finding the entrance to the troll's den farnese is roused by a telepathy from shirke and she and Casca become aware of the place that they're in, surrounded by discarded bodies being feasted on by Cliffoth's inhabitants. Shirke tells Farnese that the silver chainmail will protect them for now, but she still has to swing at an encroaching creature, using her dagger to repel him. Farnese reflects that she's wielding a blade for the sake of protecting somebody else, which makes us think of Guts and Casca. <laughs> they see the trolls raping a group of women from the village and then tossing uh, a woman down into their area and it ends up being Hannah from the village that we saw at the start of the Enoch village section. She screams for help just as something bursts from her body, killing her. A cluster of wet baby trolls emerges from her stomach. Lovely ending. I like that if you open this particular volume uh, in a traditional way from like a Western-style book, you open it up, and this, that's the first thing you see is uh, <laughs> wet baby trolls. Wet baby trolls! What's this book about? Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Lots of diversity of life in Cliffhoth, which we talked a lot about in this past episode, but there's even more now on display. Uh, and, and really just, again, to reiterate how unique each of them are, it's really fascinating. And just all the little human-like features on them. You know, like we have just to start at the very top or toward the middle of the first page, we have this like kind of mushroom things with human fingers kind of coming out of the top mm. of them. Oh, and they're cradling yeah. a little skull, too, and... The, what's the word, um, human faces and eyes, uh, pupils are all over the place here. In addition to, yeah. obviously, all the insect-like features, they also bear these kind of uh, upsetting uh, human features on them as well. It's very unnerving to look at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that, Mira, like, you've got a lot of uh, fathoms 
you know, stick insects, uh, like you mentioned, the mushrooms. You, you get creatures that are transparent, so you can see their innards. Uh, it's really, I feel like Mira inspired himself in part uh, from, um, you know, bottom-dwelling fish uh, that live very deep down the ocean, that kind of stuff. Uh, it's pretty interesting. And at the same time, Puck is flying on a... <laughs> On a flying eyeball, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, crazy. Go ahead, Um, cops. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Walter, you were saying about the human features. Um, You know how every now and then you'll you'll see a tree or or something with what you can... You know, your mind perceives a little pattern as like a human Mm -hmm. face. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really love... The fact that there are like literal like human faces in the in these gross looking tree branches all over mm-hmm. the place, I thought that was really cool. And the the two page spread of them where uh, Shirke says in inside here is the troll's den. Uh, all the creatures all flying around kind of reminds me of uh, the original. Uh, well, I imagine it. Sort of like that that original Vampire Hunter D OVA, hmm. where D like goes in. There's all these gross things flying around and crawling around. In the and, first one, when he gets to the castle, right? There's a moment where you see all these things. Oh, yes, a good call. Making like weird little noises and shit. Oh man, <laughs> but um, yeah. Um, and there's also a um. Another creature that like pops out of the water and stares at Farnese. I think that maybe I know that Mira likes Star Wars. That might be a little Star Wars reference there. When they're in the sewer thing, what do you call it? The trash compactor. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What I like about these things is that uh, they're clearly uh, you know feeding on corpses. Uh, they're scavengers, basically, and, and we actually see mm-hmm. them. And it's interesting that, like, even in this context, Mira tried to keep um, a logic to it, a rational to the world, where the trolls are bringing in uh, human uh, women and kids and whatever. They're eating them and uh, uh, raping them to death. And then they're throwing the bodies out. And then these creatures come and feast on the corpses. And so you've got yeah. this uh, food chain, basically, that's, that's being organized. And these guys, these creatures look appropriately gross. Like even the plants and everything, everything's gross. So that's interesting. And you even see uh, mushrooms growing off the corpses. So it's, it's uh, yeah. There's an ecology to it. Yeah, exactly. Even though it's, uh, uh, again, like a very horror vibey uh, situation and gross creatures, uh, there's a whole logic to it. Yeah, bottom feeders, Azil, you mentioned in the mushrooms as well. They all, they all kind of are painted by the same brush of just um, decomposing things and just surrounded by decomposing corpses. Yeah, so, yeah. exactly. Just just like at the bottom of the sea, basically. I had a big thing to say. <laughs> now I can't remember it. Shit. Oh, of course. I remember. It's um, the trolls. We have just completely brushed that part aside because it's un- uncomfortable to look at. The What's the word? Artistic technique used to depict this scene? Where the trolls are, looks like they're completely in blackness and their bodies are in pure white. Uh, really interesting choice. And the bodies also, the way he drew them, they're very different from his normal sharp pin style. These are it really it's like they're summoning an emotion or something. They're, they're just very primal looking. I don't know how else to, I don't know what right words to use for artistic stuff, but um, 
the depiction of the trolls on the humans very interesting. Yeah, the, I mean, it's it's clear the contrast of, of the black on the white mm-hmm. body of the women is uh, like it's just a strong scene. It's a strong image, and like you said, the way they're they're drawn, where you just see their mouths and and their eyes. Uh, they look very animalistic, like, uh, brutish creatures, which, I mean, they are in this context. Uh, and, and these women are just obviously victims. Um, so it's interesting. I think, again, it works with the horror vibe. It's what we mentioned, uh, a few episodes earlier when I said, when Isidro first sees a troll, you know, depending on whose point of view, uh, you see the scene, uh, through the eyes of, uh, it's a different thing. When God sees them, he sees them as creatures that he can kill. When Isidro sees them, he sees them as a danger. And in his case, Farnese seeing them as, you know, raping these women, uh, and killing them. Well, there are these horrible creatures, especially in this, uh, you know, context of the Clifford and, and everything. And so, and so, yeah, so they are completely monstrous. And I, and I feel like that scene, um, is a good way to, to, to show that. And obviously, even going, uh, further to the, uh, the birthing scene, uh, again, doing mm-hmm. air quotes here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's probably one of the most, um, graphically violent, uh, scene in the whole series, I'd say. Uh, one of the most disturbing for sure. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, um, it shows that these creatures, yeah, it shows to, to what extent they can be, uh, monstrous. Where, you know, uh, when there's just a few of them, they probably just uh, steal some, uh, you know, chicken and, you know, eat some ducks, maybe kill some cattle, then they grow more bold as they get more numerous and they attack people. And then, you know, it can become like that. Where they, yeah, they just, you know, kidnap the women, reproduce through uh, this kind of parasitic, uh, insemination, which kills them in the process. And even as you see the trolls being born, uh, like three quarters of them are malformed. So a bunch probably just die in the process. It's a pretty gruesome, gruesome process, which you can tell is parasitic. And, uh, and yeah, it shows them as a real, uh, a real force to be reckoned with, where they're individually weak, but as a pack of being, uh, yeah, they're just uh, disgusting and, uh, and monstrous. And just the way that this all happens, the fact that they're astral creatures propagating themselves through the bodies of human women in an astral, a layer of the astral world, you know, I can't help but think of the way the DACA also work is similar or maybe even the exact same thing, uh, same phenomenon happening, propagation through this weird and uh, astral. I mean, the DACA is pretty different because in that case... I think it's women who are already inseminated through rape, of course, by Christian soldiers. Mm-hmm. They are plunged into the artificial beheret, and then the fetus inside becomes corrupted and a Dakar emerges. So, uh, I mean, there are similarities because in both cases, uh, the women die uh, when the child is born. Um, but uh, in a way, it's almost... The Daka is almost closer to what happened with uh, Gus and Casca's son, where he was corrupted within the womb, you know? So, uh, except uh, for the Kushan, it's all controlled through uh, Ganishka's power. Uh, so, yeah, but, but I mean... The similarity is that through that uh, artificial chamber, that has a, establishes a connection to the astral world. That's, that's, the, 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 that's the significance of them being in that chamber, because inside the body of a 
apostle is a layer of the astral world or something like that is said in that episode. Yeah. And that's what's happening here. They, they are already here. So this kind of thing can happen. Yeah, sure. To me, that's the connection. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, and the trolls are astral beings to, to being with you. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, so I guess the reason I bring all that up is that uh, there's a function here in addition to the grotesqueness of it. And what's obviously supposed to make them more horrible is that there is, a, what's the word? Like I said the word before, ecology to as a purpose for what they're doing, uh, even if it is disgusting and horrible. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's almost, it's interesting in a way, because like I said, uh, it's, it's the way it functions, it's parasitic. Uh, they rape these women, but uh, it's not like uh, traditional, uh, you know, uh, conception of a baby uh, for humans. Uh, it seems uh, the trolls grow pretty quickly. The women die uh, also pretty quickly during the birth. Uh, you see plenty of trolls grow up. So they probably could also reproduce by raping, I don't know, maybe a sheep or, mm. uh, you know, an ox or something like that. Uh, these are just... Uh, creatures that propagate, devour everything they can, and just reproduce and propagate and propagate. So they're, they're almost like uh, like insects in a way, like ants. I, I want to say, you know, where they just they just grow. They grow more and more of them. I mean, ants is not a uh, proper because there's a queen. But my point is, they just they're very basic uh, animals. It's interesting. They they are pests. Uh, it's I guess more like rats or something, but. They just grow, they eat, uh, they grow, they propagate, they reproduce more, they grow, they grow. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting way to, to depict them halfway between monsters and really uh, environment. Whenever I look at the cliff off, and we've already talked a lot about it because it's a, it's a major section of this volume, I just can't help but feel like, boy, I really, really wanted to see other layers as well. Uh, we got to see this one in pretty startling detail. But, uh, you know, we only got peeks at them through um, when we first saw Fantasia, we saw a little bit of what the other layers could look like. Uh, and, but that's unfortunately all we got. Yeah. yeah. Well, we do, we do see a little bit when uh, Shirky and Molda go through the, uh, go down the, the cliff uh, in, in Skellig uh, to get, that's right. The, the, where the dwarves are. So we, we do see uh, a region that's adjacent to the, the cliff house, not quite there, but uh, close to it. And Shirky is uh, visibly nervous because she remembers what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we, had, we had talked about it in the, in the past, but uh, there's uh, the place the diamonds uh, exist mm-hmm. in. I mean, that's really outside of the scope of this volume 25 review but there's that and there's also probably places where more benevolent uh, spirits exist so pl- a place I mean more like a film basically a film uh, is in the astral world so that also in a way that forest is uh, I guess a, a another territory of the astral world where uh, elves uh, are so that attracts more benevolent beings mm-hmm. and yeah there's probably uh Many of the types of territories Mira could have uh, summoned from the riches of his mind. Yeah, I mean, Elfhelm itself is a territory yeah. uh, like that, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, we we did get a, a few, but uh, sure, I would have wanted more, for sure. Yeah. But it is, it is interesting still uh, thinking about this, and because, yeah, it is, it is a very graphic and horror-heavy uh, part of the series. It's interesting to think about the... 
few, I mean, I wouldn't say few because we get several, but the periodical uh, moments uh, in, in the manga where Mira really goes for the horror element. Uh, this is one of them. Obviously, the eclipse is another one. Uh, we get some uh, during the um, solitary island with the sea god. When the villagers turn, we get all those. Everything is dark. It's like yeah. dark is a main element. It's night. You see them transform. Uh, so you get all these moments, and um, yeah, these are pretty cool. I mean, we get, we probably get some with Mosgus as well, uh, with tortures, that kind of stuff. So um, Zod's first appearance is the one that comes to mind. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, in that uh, dark uh, hole, kind of, you know, uh, with <laughs> the, the piles of body. Uh, yeah, for sure. So so these are always great. I mean, they're always a, a treat for me, uh, even when the the what says uh, what's depicted is pretty gruesome, like in this case. But yeah, it's always a treat yeah. for me when Mira goes full on uh, horror vibe. Right, and when he goes full on creature design too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like he just he just went wild. Yeah, in this case, uh, <laughs> that's probably. I mean, uh, again, Alfon comes to mind for the opposite side of it, uh, the side of the coin. But for this one, that's probably one of his most. A crazy creature design scene where he really went hog wild on it. Like there's, there's so many yeah. things: a spider with a brain, and, and you know, uh, stalks for the eyes. There's a thing that with a mouth that opens up the middle of the whole body while it's a kind of a centipede. Even the the plants, you know, you see stuff that uh, that have mouths that kind of halfway between the vagina and you know. Uh, a kind of um, uh, subaquatic, uh, like uh, again, very uh, deep death. Um, you know, they've got these also these plants that feed on sulfur. I even don't know what it's called. I even don't know if they're plants or not. Actually, kind of giant worms. Uh, so yeah, all these uh, all these things are, are interesting. Even yeah, these all little uh, shells with eyes and mouths popping from. I mean, it's just crazy stuff. Yeah, I think the the mushrooms emerging from the human bodies with screaming human faces on them. To me, that's the one that's really just, today is hitting me the most. And then I can just picture Mira walking through some garden, seeing some mushrooms, and like, hmm, I wonder if what would look like if those had faces and they were emerging from nostrils or an eye socket. Yeah. I should probably draw that. I mean, he might. It, it might be a, a scene where he read, he was reading about something, and he saw that yeah, when a a, a body decomposes. You can have uh, mushrooms, and I mean, in, yeah, mushrooms ate it. Yeah, and, and insects feed on dead bodies. I mean, if you just see any animal, like in my garden, my cat will kill uh, some mice. If you, if I leave the, the bodies there, you know, every it's a, it's a feast. Every insect yeah. comes to feed on it, and uh, yeah, so yeah, it's very trendy now. Actually, the mushroom suit is the thing. You oh get yeah, that's a, a big thing. Suit. Everybody wants to become a tree when they die. Oh wow, really? Yeah. Damn. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I, that's honestly, I would, I would love it if that was the way I went personally. What the fuck? Yeah. I want to, I want to. I want all the mushrooms to eat me too, Walter. I'm with you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> but also, also, it reminds me of uh, if you ever watch those undersea documentaries and they show what happens to a whale corpse when it, yeah. you know, sinks down to the bottom of the ocean. That's uh, it's really interesting. It, it was really like a Las Vegas buffet. Yeah, I really do think uh, this is like mainly primarily inspired by uh, bottom of the sea uh, feeding. Because when, yeah, like you said, when big carcasses fall down and all these creatures come, uh, 
like the crustacean and everything come and just feel on it because uh, it's got that vibe to me. I mean, that's also why I mentioned the sea god because in a way, all these creatures, it kind of remind me, uh, reminds me of, of that, you know, the inside of the sea god, that kind of uh, yeah. oppressive feeling. Uh, almost you can feel the, the tension in the air, like like the barometric tension is, is uh, higher than it should be. So I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. I, and I think there's a lot of undersea things happening here. Uh, I can't. I don't know the names of all the creatures, uh, so I can't point to you when I'm talking about. But uh, the what's the what's the oldest living creature? Uh, the oldest one? Those really got shellfish looking things. I can't remember the name of them. Uh, Gray, you mean or? Yeah, no, not entirely great. No, anyway, there's a shellfish-looking thing. It looks like a lobster, basically, here. Um, horseshoe crab-looking thing is here. Yeah. Uh, but right next to that, the fact I think there are fish that have completely transparent bodies. Yeah, uh, yeah. We see the transparency thing happening here. Yeah, that exists, yeah. yeah. They're all partying yeah. at the bottom of the ocean, well, too. Well, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a, it doesn't have to be one of the other, right? Uh, it's a, like, like no, we said, sure. it's a mix between a swamp with like the mushrooms and the insects. And bottom of the sea stuff with the crustaceans and uh, fish-like things, and also whatever else uh, nightmare Muir had when he was a kid. Ah, oh, uh, <laughs> clearly a brain on a on on spider legs with on stilts with yeah, eye sure. stalks. Yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> Why not? Well, in the next volume, 26, is that right? 26? Yeah, wow, 26 is a big one. Uh, we get to see some of the extermination of some of these creatures. Well, one variety in particular. Uh, it is pretty It is we, pretty cool. I mean, that's that's some of my favorite action in the whole series. Because, and I like, uh, I think it's not good to take time to say this, but I like that the trolls are portrayed like that. Again, in that horror vibe aspect. And, and, you know, we see at the end of this episode when, uh, Anna's uh, belly explodes, uh, Hannah's belly explodes, oh, sorry. And, and we see Farnes' face, like you, you get that look on her face in the bottom of the, uh, uh, penultimate page and she really looks panic. And, and then the actual last shot is her screaming. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so that horror aspect to it. And then Gus arrives and it's like, it's like uh, an FPS, right? <laughs> yeah. He's got you get that shot that's right out of Doom where he's um how to say bowgunning them, you know, in a row and then it's just it's just a massacre and um and yeah, that's that's just uh to me that's one of the my, my favorite action shots in the in the whole series. So it's interesting that in a way this scene of horror also sets up the retribution uh at God's yeah. hands. I mean, he's yeah. excited about it too, not just you. That's uh, <laughs> excited about it. So nobody yeah, else is yeah. here to hold me back. I don't have it's to protect anything. Time to clean out the troll hole. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that's for the next uh, next volume reread. Uh, and so, if this is anything else, we will be back in a month. Awesome. I think that's all. Yeah. Yeah. Well then, see you later. Thanks all. Bye bye. See you. Bye bye. The Skullcast is a production of Skullknight.net, a Berserk fan community. If you like what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash sknet. Donations there do not go towards the podcast, but instead toward our resident translator, Puella, who ensures that our members have access to high-quality, text-based translations of Berserk. Puella has also been translating interviews with Berserk's creator, Kentaro Miura. Many of these interviews have never been translated into English, so it's very exciting to read those. 
That kind of work simply wouldn't have happened without support from our donors. If you'd like to chip in a buck or two, please know that it all helps. Once again, that's patreon.com slash sknet. If you have a question or want to comment on the podcast, visit our forum, skullnet.net slash forum. Near the top, you'll see a section devoted to the podcast. There's always an active thread in there, so go ahead, leave a post, and someone's sure to respond quickly. Thanks for listening.